Welcome to American Ambassadors Events, the podcast that allows listeners to sit in on otherwise exclusive events hosted by the Council of American Ambassadors. This episode features a presentation on migration flows by Ambassador William Lacey Swing at the Council's Economic Diplomacy Conference on November 13, 2019 in New York City. This session was moderated by CAA member Stuart Bernstein, U.S. Ambassador to Denmark during the administration of President George W. Bush. I've seen a lot of resumes in my day, but I don't think I've seen one as impressive as Ambassador Swings. Uh, he's, he's had three careers in the world of diplomacy. He's served uh, as six ambassadors under four presidents. He's been ambassador six times. And then he went on to become uh, quite a substantial player at the United Nations for 17 years. And then he's gotten into his last tour uh, on this, what do you call it, migration? Uh, which is also a hot area right now that he's gonna talk about, us, talk about with us today. And I hope, uh, Ambassador, you'll include something concerning the wall and, uh, and the latest thing I read about or heard about is that when Europe opened up the gates for immigration to come, for the immigrants to come to uh, Europe, now they're paying him to leave. So this is gonna be quite an interesting uh, discussion and thank you and then we'll have some questions, I'm sure. Thank you, Ambassador. Read his resume if you have a chance. I've never seen anything like it. And I forgot to mention he's got several awards that he was been given. So he's quite a, quite a guy, quite a guy. Thank you for your service. Thank you. It just shows my age. Um, it's really an honor for me to be with you today, and I want to thank the organizers for uh, including me in the fall conference today. I want to express my own high esteem and gratitude and admiration for all of you who have done such a good service uh, to our country. Uh, I'm always proud, and I think we should, all should be, that the question of ambassadors and their appointment is enshrined in our Constitution, I think in Article II, and that means it seems to me that we have a major obligation when we are appointed. It's been my really good fortune to know a number of you, meet you along the way, uh, uh, and uh, I'm delighted to see you all again. Uh, and to become acquainted with those ambassadors whom I've not previously met. So I was asked to speak about economic diplomacy and the management of international migration or the international management of migration. And I was asked to draw on my 10 years as Director General of the International Organization for Migration, which is increasingly known as the UN Migration Agency because uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and I signed the agreement at the opening of the General Assembly in 2016, and so we've now become a UN agency. So let me just be upfront with you uh, that my assessment is that the economic arguments for migration, both historically and currently, uh, make the strongest case for migration and migrants. 
that migration namely and migrants are in the national interest of both the country of destination and the country of origin. Uh, I used to say to Peter Sutherland, whom some of you may know, unfortunately he passed on uh, two years ago, he was the Secretary General's uh, Special Representative for International Migration uh, under both Secretary General Kofi Annan and Ban Ki-moon. And I used to say that, Peter, you have much more credibility than I do because you are a hard-nosed former head of both BP and Goldman Sachs. I'm just earning a living, but you have credibility. And he really became very, very committed to the proposition that migration is in the national interest. So let me make three points. I'm gonna to describe to you two worlds in which we live and one in which economic diplomacy can play a major role in creating. First of all, we live in a world on the move. Migration is a mega trend of this century. The movement of human beings across borders uh, is taking place on a scale never seen before. One out of every seven persons in our world is a migrant. There are one billion migrants in our seven billion world. 250 million are crossing borders, international migrants, and 750 million are domestic migrants. We just heard a wonderful presentation by Danny Russell on China. China alone has more domestic migrants than there are international migrants, but that's not surprising. Everything's big in China, as we know. But they face some of the same problems if going, coming from the west of China to the coastal towns, uh, cities of Shanghai or Guangzhou or uh, others. You have to learn a new language. Um, so the actual number of migrants, it's, always, it's still about 3% of the world's population are crossing borders, international migrants. But the reason the numbers are greater now is because of a demographic oddity that the world's population quadrupled in the 20th century. Never happened before, unlikely to happen again soon. So most migration is taking place regularly, voluntarily, and safely. But let me illustrate it and dramatize it a bit more. If these 250 million migrants were to constitute themselves as a nation, they would be either number six or number seven. They would have a population slightly larger than Brazil's and slightly smaller than Indonesia's. They would have a GDP of $600 billion, which is the money they send home every year, which would place them more or less GDP of a small size European Union member state, perhaps let's say Finland or possibly Austria. Now, uh, in addition, according to Forbes magazine, some 50% of all CEOs in the United States are either migrants <clears throat> or descendants of migrants. So what is driving so many migrants to move? There's a whole range uh, of it. There are three population trends, mega trends of our time. 
migration, demography, and urbanization. 90% of all migrants will end up in cities. So what are these driving factors? First of all, demography, an aging north in need of workers at all skill levels, and a largely unemployed, youthful, global south with turgid job creation. Demand for labor. Labor shortage in the global north, labor surplus in the global south. You have the growing disparities, socioeconomic. There was a World Bank IMF report recently that said that large-scale migration from poor countries to richer ones will be a permanent feature of the global economy for decades to come. Degradation of the economy, of the, of the uh, environment, climate change, distant shrinking technology, the digital revolution, desperation or survival migration, such as in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East that we spoke about this morning, Venezuela, Central America. People have either given up on the economy and the government, or they're victims of gang violence, or they see no hope in remaining at home. Disasters. I have to tell you, in my long life, I have never known a time like we have today. We have armed conflicts from the western bulge of Africa to Southeast Asia. And there is no prospect in the short to medium term of a resolution of any of these. As Frank Wisner said this morning, no end in sight. In my lifetime, I've never known a time like this. So given these root causes, and this is a very unpopular message to deliver anywhere, perhaps better in the US and elsewhere, it seems very likely that our world will increasingly evolve into one that will become inexorably more multicultural, more multi-ethnic, more multi-religious, more multilingual. It's moving in that direction, and I see with these driving factors, no way to change that, nor not that we necessarily should. But we live in a second world, a world amidst a perfect storm, to use that phrase. We live in a world very disorderly, responding in a counter-cyclical way to the movement of people, a world adrift, having lost our bearings in the middle of this perfect storm. What are the elements of that storm? First of all, the greatest forced migration since World War II. 68 million displaced persons growing every day, 43 million internally displaced persons, and 25 million refugees. And keep in mind, with the refugees, we never settled more than 1% of the world's refugees a year. Secondly, refugee returns are at a 30-year low. And thirdly, the average camp time for a refugee is now 26 years. Um, you have a further 75 million people living one meter above the sea, the sea level. Uh, one of these 10 Pacific Island countries, Kiribati, has already bought land in Fiji to take their people when the water level rises. 
we have another element of the perfect storm, unprecedented and increasing anti-migrant sentiment and anti-migrant policies, xenophobia, harmful and misleading pronouncements by national and world leaders that creates and perpetuates stereotypes of migrants that are endanger the migrants and deny us their contributions. Human traffickers and smugglers, they're only number three behind running drugs and guns, $35 billion a year, and our out-of-date, irresponsible migration policies are indirectly subsidizing the traffickers and smugglers. We have a decline in public confidence in our government's ability or will to manage migration, an appalling dearth of political leadership, courage, and vision, a serious erosion of international moral authority, with the UN Security Council perhaps being the prime example, violation of, human, of, of international humanitarian law by all sides in the numerous conflicts. So countries are building walls rather than bridges, an increasingly populous nationalist world that is turned inward, uh, and that is a, a world that is afflicted with what Javier Solana used to call migrant and refugee amnesia. Two examples. My old organization, IOM and UNHCR, we were founded in 1951 for what reason? To take Europeans ravaged by the Second World War to safe shores and new lives in the United States, Canada, Australia, and elsewhere. Um, Viktor Orban in Hungary has forgotten 61 years ago, 200,000 Hungarians fled to the open arms of Austria and former Yugoslavia. Amnesia, we've forgotten. And you know, as an ambassador, I used to be very proud to be able to say, my country, the United States, takes more refugees every year than the rest of the world together. Today, Canada has replaced us. Only 18,000 foreseen this year, which is the lowest number since the year after 9-11 when we were reassessing. So these then are some of the elements that constitute what I call a perfect storm with regard to migrants and migration. Now there's a third world out there. If you're in a perfect storm, you go for the high ground, for the high morale ground. In other words, we need together to make the economic and national interest case for migrants and migration. Economic diplomacy has a key role to play in addressing the anti-migrant and xenophobic policies. There are numerous ways, but let me just mention three in this third part. We have, through economic diplomacy, to build an evidence base. A few examples. We've just done a report with McKinsey Global Institute. And what did we find? The 3% of these international migrants that I mentioned produce 9% of global GDP, and that is 4% more than they would have produced if they'd stayed at home. That's a very powerful example. 
Migrants start companies at twice the rate of Native Americans. Half of the companies in Fortune 500 were started by immigrants or their children. It also helps us to address the demographic deficit in OECD countries. The population of Europe and developed countries will drop by nearly 25% in the coming years. Japan will lose at least a third of its population before the end of the century. And uh, Europe already has the world's oldest population. We've been spared all of that. Why? Somewhat higher birth rate, maybe the replacement rate of 2.1 children uh, per family. But it is immigration that has allowed us to maintain our population levels and to avoid the demographic deficit. But our population of 60 years and older is going to double by 2050. Uh, the longer range health of the United States, therefore, will be hurt by larger cuts in immigration. Overall, the impact of low immigration will be profoundly negative for the United States. Even our retirement and social security system relies on workers. I couldn't believe it in Geneva where I spent the last 10 years. The Swiss actually published a report that showed that their immigration, that their social welfare system, which is very generous, would be in deep trouble were it not for the large uh, migrant populations they have there. So if we're gonna reap the benefits of migration in these aging societies, governments are gonna need comprehensive, longer-term uh, economic and migration policies to help integrate migrants into societies and combat, combat xenophobia. So evidence-based, Number two, closely related, perspective. Let me give you a couple of examples. Someone for me who's a great hero, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, when she said, wir schaffen das, she must have assumed that some of the other 27 EU member states would follow her. Well, Sweden and Austria did for a short while, then they backed away. But also, she understood that the 1.5 million migrants who crossed from Libya into Europe in 2015 was less than 1% of the EU's population of 550 million. In other words, she knew it was a manageable problem. Migration is not an issue to be solved. It is a human reality to be managed. But Europe has turned inward. I mentioned Hungary, Italy, many other countries, gone the, gone the other way. Uh, so uh, in a similar vein, the Thai, Malaysian, and Indonesian governments convoked basically me and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees in 2016 for an urgent meeting, crisis. What was the problem? There were 7,000 Rohingya refugees in the Bay of Bengal and Andaman Sea floating on boats there. And this is a crisis for an area that has more than 350 million population. We had doctors and others waiting to receive them 
in both Malaysia and Indonesia. But for them, it was a crisis. They had totally lost perspective, um, calling it a crisis. So final point, I guess, under the perspective one is that the biggest issue for people now for migration is fear of the loss of identity. And if we can't deal with that, then we will probably lose the battle. This is the greatest challenge of all. But we know that issues of class and religion play on people's fears about identity. Governments simply have to become more active. Programs of government education, programs of public information, so they will prepare them for the new world that is coming, that I've said before, repeating again, will actually become more multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious. I don't see any way out. Third one, using the evidence base and the perspective, we need as use economic diplomacy to attack and destroy the damaging and dangerous stereotypes of migrants. What are these? First of all, stereotype that we don't need migrants. On the contrary, aging societies in Europe and Japan and elsewhere with declining population, uh, populations will need migrants in every field and at every skill level. Second stereotype, migrants steal our jobs. No, contrary. They actually create jobs, especially in small, medium enterprises. They also do the dirty, difficult, and dangerous jobs that Americans don't want to do. Um, we refuse to do them. John Kenneth Galbraith once said that migration is the world's most effective poverty reduction strategy, and I think he was right. The other one is migrants bring a criminal element into our communities. Well, in point of fact, statistics show they create fewer crimes than our own citizens do. Why? Partly because their goal is to make money to send home for the families left behind. And secondly, their goal is to avoid any contact with the police or the courts. Some of them don't have proper papers. The other one is they've come to exploit our welfare system. It's probably true. But the World Bank again and the IMF has shown that migrants very quickly contribute more money in taxes than they consume in social services. And the sooner a migrant has a job, the sooner that migrant will pay tax. So we have a direct interest in providing access to health and education facilities. Do you want unhealthy migrants in your community? Give them access. Do you want educated migrants or uneducated brats running around to get in trouble. The other one is, the final one I'll mention, migrants pose a security threat. Two points. First of all, IOM has brought 3.5 million refugees to the United States since 1980. There's nothing on the public record that any one of those refugees has ever committed anything even approaching a terrorist act. In fact, it's the opposite. All of the terrorist acts, San Bernardino, California, Orlando, Florida, Paris, Brussels, Nice, Barcelona, 
They were all homegrown, committed by citizens of those countries, not by newly arrived migrants. So the large majority of migration, as I say, is going very smoothly. But we have to use economic diplomacy to demythologize migrants. That's a phrase I learned when I was a student in Germany, to demythologize the migration question. So let me conclude by returning to my thesis, that is, that migration remains not so much a problem to be solved, but a human reality to be managed. It's as old as humankind and as new as today. It's a human reality that can be managed using economic diplomacy. It's part of our DNA. It is one and the same time, three things. Large-scale migration is inevitable, given the driving forces I've described to you. It is necessary if jobs are to be filled, skills to be available, and economies to flourish. And it is desirable if we have the right policies, policies in which economic diplomacy can play a central role. Thank you. Great. Let's, let's do some questions. Of course, uh, two things that you promised you'd cover was why is uh, Europe sending, paying to send them back and what's going on on our border and our wall, yeah. those people that are coming in. Yeah. Uh, or you can sit yeah. here and... Yeah. No, let me, yeah, let me. And then uh, Bruce? No. No, let, let him answer what I just said and then you're next. Okay, first of all, actually, paying people to go back home is, in itself is not necessarily bad. We have long had a program called um, voluntary, volunt uh, assisted voluntary return. We took 60,000 migrants back from Germany to help uh, Angela Merkel out. These were people who'd fallen on hard times. They hadn't found work. They didn't want to learn the German language. They were a little unhappy in general. They wanted to go home. So we sent them home, assisted by the German government, with some money. They go back with some dignity. They didn't lose everything. They came back enough money to get life started again. And I've often thought that assisted voluntary return is a much more humane and sensible way. It's actually cheaper than deportation. If you watch people putting a deportee on the plane, takes a lot of time of officials to get them on there and to accompany them. So I, it, I'm not necessarily uh, against what Europe is doing if it's done in the right way, providing some money they get like, if they're not, the main thing is it's voluntary, if it's voluntary. If it's involuntary, I'd be totally opposed to it. What was the second question? Uh, our wall, our, our southern <laughs> border. What, yeah, what well, well uh, it's, a, it's, it's a, a very, uh, irresponsible use of taxpayer money. It's not going to stop anybody to start with. Uh, there are actually more Mexicans start returning home than coming in. And if the 12 million Mexicans went home tomorrow, it would cripple large sections of our economy, as we know. So uh, we need to be sensible about this. There are ways to do this. Uh, we're still deporting far, far too many people. And the DACA group is, is, a, is a great shame and disgrace for our country. Uh, I would love to see us get back to a more sensible policy 
in which the Statue of Liberty, the, the inscription there actually meant something. But what's happened is, as with the migrant and refugee amnesia, we have all forgotten. Uh, we've, we've forgotten our past. We're going back on our values and our history. And it's very unfortunate with the wall being the most disgraceful part. Okay, Bruce. My, my question has to do with problem of making um, decisions of this sort at a time where this country, the United States, has had almost a 10-year upward growth in jobs, people working, and a downward growth in the exact opposite. Is this the time when things are going so well to change the attitudes toward incoming people as opposed to forgetting what happened during the period where we didn't have this unbelievable growth in employment, but more typically millions of people walking the streets with no jobs, no hope, and only the government to keep them alive. No, I think, to, I think today um, it's very unfortunate to see what we're doing because um, we, do need, we do need more workers now for, as I say, for the dirty, difficult, dangerous jobs. They'll move up the ladder, but initially they're prepared to come in like that. Um, secondly, uh, it's quite clear that um, we have lost our role now as the ultimate place where migrants and refugees can come and have a, have a, a, a bit of hope. I don't think it impacts significantly on our own uh, employment since these are not the jobs that our people want to do. Uh, but I think uh, as it currently stands, we're looking at 18,000 refugees this year, and that's the lowest level we've, we've had in a long time. And I don't see, uh, with uh, separating families at the border and families in, from their parents from their children, I think is a very, very unfortunate uh, blot on our record uh, as a country, and I feel badly about it. I don't see any of the policies of this administration helping to, to keep the flow down or to treat people in a humane manner. And I think it's a, it's a sad day for our country. That's one point of view. Yeah. No, I think there's, a, there's room. There's room for uh, obvious disagreement uh, on, on the question of migration. But I think it's important that we have the debate now. And I don't see that there's much of a debate going on in the Congress or elsewhere about migration right now. It's become a more like a dirty word. Jim? Uh, I'm the grandson of immigrants, though I have blue eyes and used to have blonde hair before it turned gray and before I knew Bill Swim Swing 30 years ago. But my parents, my grandparents, rich, dynamic, part of the American progress, were not allowed in clubs and in nice places until after the Second World War. So my father tried to clean us all up 
sent us off to prep schools in, in the east here from Ohio and to Yale University of all funny places, not Princeton, young man. Uh, so there is a way that you can move forward, but I still have blue eyes. And you were talking about people, about fear, fear of lost identity. What about the people that don't like foreigners, not because we're good Irishmen that drink Jemison whiskey, but we're brown or black or uh, from Africa or from weird places like Mexico? What about that? Are they people that are afraid of loss of identity or are they basically not spanked by their grandparents and they're dirty racists? Well, I think, look, I think this is why our current policies are so difficult to explain. Uh, we are much better situated than most countries in Europe are. We are already very multicultural, very multi-ethnic, becoming more and more multi-religious. Uh, and it should be therefore much simpler for us to resettle and to integrate uh, people than it would be in Europe or other more mono-ethnic uh, societies. Uh, given the demographic uh, features that I just outlined for you, I just don't see any way that the world's gonna go in another direction. This whole question of now populist nationalism where you know, Viktor Orban wants everybody to be Christian and white and all of that I, is going exactly in the wrong direction that the demography is going. I don't see any way to, that one's going to avoid that. And the problem is we don't, it, it doesn't win elections. People say, yeah, that's going to happen, but I'm only interested in the next election. Well, it's happening already. And the multi-ethnic societies of the world are much better equipped right now to receive migrants than those who now really have an identity question, whereas here it should not be as much for reasons that you say. You're here because of Mary. One of the things that made me so proud when I was ambassador was other ambassadors coming up to me. How do you do it? How do you work? You're, you're, you're a combination of so many different religions and cultures, and you all get along. And I said, yes, and we love each other. My dearest, closest friends are all that. But what I found, like in Denmark, for instance, the immigrants that came over there, they were just coming for the money. They didn't want to learn the language. They didn't want to be part of the, the Danish culture, like people want to be part of the American dream. And 50% of their crime, the bodyguards used to tell me, were coming from the immigrants. Well, you, you make a good point. I mean, the, the immigrants have responsibilities also. It's a two-way street, the question of integration. What we have done generally, and what we're doing now for Australia, Canada, and we were doing for the US for a while, we have pre-departure cultural orientation. Not just the fact that it gets cold in New York in the month of December, uh, but, and, and you have to learn English and so forth, but to, to help people to understand what it is that, that is expected of them when they come over how they're supposed to respect local culture and norms in addition to the laws so that they have a responsibility too. It's a two-way street. And at the same time, doing what Justin Trudeau did in Canada. When I was in, um, in uh, Ottawa in December of 2016, uh, he had run his campaign. One of the plat uh, planks in his platform was, if I am elected, I will bring 35,000 Syrian refugees to Canada. 
anywhere else that would have gotten you a, a loss in the electoral polls, but he won on that. And he asked me in December of 2016, can we bring the 35,000 Syrians to Canada by the end of February, in the next three months? And I said, if anybody can, we can, and we got busy on it, and we brought them all over. But before that, he sent his Minister of Home Affairs throughout Canada, talked to all, what are they called, governors and mayors, to say, look, this is the, the number of people you're going to get, and this is your responsibility. And we, in turn, will give pre-orientation, uh, cultural orientation in Lebanon, Jordan, uh, and, uh, and uh, Turkey to these Syrian refugees who are coming, so that there was some pre-departure orientation was taking place so that when they got there, they had a little better idea and the communities knew what their responsibility was. But to do this, the government has to take the lead and it's all about leadership. That's, that's the story. So I appreciate the, uh, the idea of, of uh, orientation of immigrants as they arrive in a country. What about this concept of uh, sort of value vetting? Uh, the idea of uh, admitting uh, refugees to your country who do not share the values of their country. Take, for example, uh, uh, refugees from the Middle East who yeah. believe in the subservience of women. Yeah. And how do you uh, sort of integrate that concept into the values of American society? Well, that's a tough one, and that is, again, goes back to the question of uh, responsibility, no, helping migrants understand what the responsibility is, saying this is not the way women are treated in our society. Uh, I don't know how far along you'll get on that, but it has to be done, and you have to start before they leave, and it has to continue after you come. It's just like language learning. Uh, same thing. You have to, as I say, respect the values and norms uh, of the culture into which you're going. But that's going to be a major, major challenge because in their people, will, the identity question really will come up uh, is that uh, we, we, don't share, we don't share the same values. And that's an ongoing process. But we've done it for many, many years. I think we've done it reasonably well. Uh, but it's a lot of hard work, takes a lot of time, and a lot of government leadership but if the government's not prepared to do the programs of government, ed uh, ed public education, and public information, it's probably not going to work very well. And it also depends on, on the numbers also. If the numbers are very large, the challenge is even greater. But um, I, this is, for me, the biggest problem that Europe faces in migration right now is integration. It's not working well. Uh, and they have not committed the resources to it uh, that, would be, that would be required. And Europe still does not have a comprehensive, long-term, multifaceted migration policy on which all agree. In fact, they've got about 28 different policies and cannot seem to come together around the question of migration, no matter hard we, how hard all of us have worked with them. And so you get these huge divisions now and countries that would normally 
be supporting Angela Merkel uh, have gone the other way. Well, uh, okay, one more, go ahead. Um, I spent part of my life on the other part of the equation in developing countries, and one could even argue being a, a refugee on a cargo ship. And I found that most people really wanted to live in their own countries. And like a lot of us, I've also been involved in aid and development assistance programs. So my question is, uh, we've been through so many, and you've served in so many countries where we've made a lot of efforts in that regard. And ironically, we're apparently having a little bit of success uh, in uh, Honduras and Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered about the comments and, and in, in my view that a lot of people would really prefer if they could uh, survive and make a, a living, stay in their own country uh, rather than that uh, adventurous yeah. You mean uh, most of them become because of financial <coughs> yeah. Uh, opportunity? Yeah, rather, rather than abject. Um, but I mean, right now we're talking about uh, a high percentage of people who feel that they should be given asylum because of the dangers and problems in their own countries. And I just wondered if there are anything, hmm. any recommendations you would have for future administrations on how we would recalibrate our development assistance. Well, I think this goes back uh, to Ambassador Gelb's original question, the original question of the, the relationship to employment levels and so on. And I think that for example, what the administration did in the Northern Triangle of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras was exactly the wrong thing to do. We say, because so many of your people are coming here, we'll cut off the aid. No, <laughs> if you give them development aid, that improves the chances they're going to stay home and then don't become a burden to us when we, we want to keep our uh, unemployment levels low. Uh, so clearly there's a link between migration and development aid uh, and uh, international investment. And when you look at the numbers of people coming across the Mediterranean into Europe, they're basically in a place like Niger, for example, where uh, one used to be able to live based on agriculture, no longer possible now because of climate change. Uh, the, gang, uh, the gangs in places like Honduras are making, making life Im impossible. And so until we can do more to assist those countries, they, they will be sending more people here. So the, the link between aid and uh, movement of people is a very strong one that needs to be maintained, not cutting it off. Right. People do want to stay home. They don't want to leave. I was uh, talking to a couple of uh, recently arrived uh, immigrants here in New York where, where I, have, I have a home, and uh, it's quite clear that they long to go back, but they can't make it economically. Therefore, and I think also in terms of the private sector, investment is very important. Yeah. All right, my articulate friend Tim gets the last word. <laughs> I want to ask you your views on my response. First of all, on that, in case you think these are left-wing Democrats pushing that silly aid stuff on taxpayers' money, the people that I read that are pushing civilian aid in Central America, or my old boss, George Schultz, and my other old boss, Ronald Reagan. 
So it's not, that's, that's important to say. I have a question. Uh, I think another thing, and I like your view on this, another thing that's pushing our acceptance of foreigners is, though I'm not a wasp, I had blue eyes and blonde hair and grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and if I wanted pasta in the 50s, I had to go down to an Italian neighborhood where nobody spoke English and order wonderful, wonderful pasta. I now live where you used to live, Bill, in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and you have 10 million different kinds of funny food from all over the bleeding world. If I want to get wasp food, I have to go down to Billy Martin's Tavern where Jack Kennedy was married, uh, engaged to Jackie, and order steak and baked potato because you can't find it in a regular restaurant. Doesn't that help us become modern people, acceptance of foreigners and their funny food? Yeah. No, but it, look, let me conclude on your uh, question here. I, uh, I thank you for all the good questions here. Uh, it goes back to my initial thesis, which is that whether we like it or not, migration is going to happen. And the real question is whether we want to treat it as a crisis and say, oh boy, you've got 7,000 people floating in the Andaman Sea and we've got to get, we've three, we're 350 million people, or the example of Angela Merkel where 1.5 million is less than a percent of the population. Are you going to treat that as a crisis uh, or are you going to deal with it as a human reality that has always been there. It happens to be maybe more movement now than ever before. Um, but it's got to be dealt with and managed by responsible leaders. And uh, right now, frankly, we've gone the other way. It was my whole point about the second world. We've gone the other way, uh, saying, no, we don't want any of these foreigners. We want to live life like it is. We're going to end on that, but I will close by saying next to our brilliant founding fathers, I think what makes America the greatest is the all of us who came from a different place. You have been listening to Ambassador William Lacey Swing at the Council of American Ambassadors Economic Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening.